Retired four-star U.S. Army General Stanley McChrystal breaks down how and why we should think of risk management. I'm joined by Nanaba Duncan, an award-winning broadcaster and advocate of underrepresented perspectives in journalism. She's the founder of Media Girlfriends. I'm joined by Jeff Jarvis, the author of Geeks Bearing Gifts, Imagining New Futures for News. What would Google do? I'm joined by Dan Gardner, New York Times bestselling author of books about psychology and decision-making. A best-selling author, associate professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy, and former journalist and editor-in-chief of the Ottawa Citizen, Andrew Potter has some concerns. Today, I'm joined by Cass Sunstein, best-selling author, university professor at Harvard Law School, and the administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in the Obama administration. Carl Bergstrom is a professor of evolutionary biology at the University of Washington in Seattle. He is the co-author of a new book, Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. Hey, it's Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk. After two seasons of episodes covering all types of risks in finance, education, climate, healthcare, privacy, we're going to be taking a break for a while. But before that, we're revisiting some of my favorite conversations. This is the final episode of our series. Today, we're talking about how risk plays a role in a bigger picture, one that involves people, places, and things that can all be curated, repeated, and maybe even predicted. Anatomy is the science that studies the structure of the body. On a superficial level, we can talk about human anatomy in terms of five basic parts. The head, neck, torso, arms, and legs. If we look deeper, we find 11 major organs working together to perform a shared function. And underneath all of that is a cocktail of chemical mixes that all keep the engine running. Like human anatomy, risk isn't all that simple. We can talk about crisis, conflict, missteps, tragedy, all of the above, and all of which are bigger than risk. Risk is not just something that happens. It has several elements that seemingly work together to get the job of one unique disruption done. So let's talk to the experts. Like any risk to anatomy, the recovery has a huge dependency on the health of the immune system. Retired four-star U.S. Army General Stanley McChrystal believes the greatest risk to us is us. He breaks down how and why we should think of risk management like an immune system and how to keep it performing well. Best-selling author, associate professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy and former journalist and editor-in-chief of the Ottawa Citizen, Andrew Potter, has carefully collected the receipts on the negative trends that so many of us grapple with every day and methodically set them out in his new book, On Decline. Dan Gardner, New York Times bestselling author of books on psychology and decision-making, explores how to prepare for all of the low probability, high consequence events that are largely knowable, but whose precise timing is difficult to pinpoint. Authors Cass Sunstein and Carl Bergstrom 
identify the rise of misleading statements in mathematical and scientific jargon. Talk about how even accurate information can confound and overwhelm without intent. And Jeff Jarvis and Anaba Duncan explore the more overlooked internal threats to journalism. When your health is on the decline, it's usually due to a series of events in the body that accumulate and have a noticeable negative impact. As you age, organs begin to lose some function, changes occur in all of the body's cells and tissues that then affect the functioning of our larger systems. We can think of global systems in the same terms. New information technology has come at an alarming pace, changing our everyday lives, increasing accessibility to information, giving license to anyone with an internet connection to build their own narrative. We see and feel the tumult of the world around us and wonder, are we in decline? Andrew Potter talks about what, if anything, we can do about it. And Dan Gardner explains why the politics haven't changed, just the platforms. Thank you for joining me, Andrew, and welcome to At Risk. Uh, Thanks for having me. So this decline you write about, is it permanent or is there hope for a reversal at some point? Um, well, uh, that's a good question. I mean, uh, you know, uh, as I say, where there's where there's life, there's hope. Um, and and I think um, the, the future is not written. Uh, you know, there are no there are no facts about the future. Um, what I'm trying to do is point to certain trends that um, I see sort of, you know, working uh, and, and mutually reinforcing one another that um, are going to be very hard to uh, to sort of undo. And I think they're going to have to play themselves out. Um, there are some there are some ways in which um, decline might might reverse itself, um, uh, but uh, I think I, I'm certainly suggesting that there is a, a long term trajectory we're into, uh, we're into right now that has um, a, a fair amount of uh, path dependency at work that's going to be hard to reverse. And this may sound like a silly question, but just to kind of be clear, what are we talking about as declining? Like, is it civilization, our species, what? When I when I talk about decline, um, this isn't uh, this isn't a Hollywood thriller, right? This isn't you know the day after tomorrow uh, with you know suddenly the continent freezing over overnight, and it's it's not the moon exploding, and it's not aliens arriving. It's not it's not any one big event. What it is is it's a story of a number of uh, phenomena or circumstances all coming together and preventing us from progressing in the way we always kind of thought progress progress would work. And so when I talk about decline, what I'm suggesting ultimately is happening is that our abilities to solve the problems we face, which largely amount to uh, collective action problems, our capacity to, to confront, recognize, confront, and resolve those collective action problems are in decline. Basically meaning it's getting harder and harder for us to, solve the, to, solve, to resolve the problems we face. And those problems are just going to build up. Uh, and they're going to keep getting worse. They're just going to keep festering. And uh, I think that eventually we're going to look back and think, you know, it's almost like a relationship where there's never any one minute where, uh, or moment in most relationships where you think things have gone bad. But in a bad relationship, you, you kind of can look back, you know, after three or four or five years, maybe you think, oh, you know, it's been a while since things were any good. And, and I have a feeling that's sort of where we're headed right now. We're going to look back in this period and think, uh, you know, that was the last time things were actually uh, good. It's been kind of downhill for a long time since then. Okay, so let's dig into it. What is causing this decline? So 
It's a number of connected things. Um, the, the first is, I think, the economic technological stagnation um, that has been in place in our economy, Canada, um, the United States, but also the West in general, um, since, since the 1970s. And, you know, that, that stagnation is sort of uh, well established. Why it's the case uh, is, is, less, is less well understood. Um, the economist uh, and sort of blogger and sort of all around sort of public intellectual, Tyler Cowen, wrote, a, wrote a, uh, an essay about as long as my book. Um, 10 years ago called The Great Stagnation, where he kind of tried to articulate what was going on. And what struck me about his argument was that he said, look, you, you know, we had this idea that progress was like a ladder we had climbed, right? That in sort of around the 1800s, we sort of figured it, we figured the world out. And now we kicked the ladder out behind us. And now we can keep sort of just keep the, keep the progress, uh, you know, conveyor belt going. And he said, like, you know, what if, what if that's not the case? What if what actually happened is we stumbled onto this buffet of like free food in the form of uh, a lot of free land and very cheap energy, uh, very dirty energy, but very cheap energy and figured out ways of, of connecting that to, uh, to, to machines, basically electricity and, and fuel added to machines to, to, um, generate, um, economic growth. That's all stagnated. Uh, and has been in place for about 50 years. Now, what, what are the consequences of economic and technological stagnation? One of which is just simply life life uh, starts, starts to get, doesn't, doesn't keep getting better at the rate you're expecting. But it has, it has a slightly more pernicious consequences, which is that one of the things we know about economic growth, one thing it does do is it makes us better people uh, in the public sphere in the sense that it makes us more open to open immigrants, open to diversity, less risk averse, more open to risk taking and so on. And generally, when you have this sense that life is going to keep getting better, there's going to be growth year after year, everyone gets a little less anxious and stops looking at their neighbors with uh, you know a side eye or anything. When you do have economic uh, stagnation, the opposite occurs, right? People start to look at their neighbors a bit warily, start to get a little more suspicious of immigrants and diversity, and that generates um, political polarization. When you add into that, the, when you, or when you pour onto that, the fuel of the internet, social media in particular, and Twitter in particular, which simply catalyzes and exacerbates these, you get uh, a self-reinforcing uh, system of political tribalization and polarization that makes basically democratic politics quite difficult. And if we understand progress as essentially the um, capacity to resolve collective action problems that are solve problems that are in the public interest by sort of overriding people's private interests, this combination of, of basically economic stagnation, um, slow growth, um, political polarization, and increased tribalization is preventing that. One of the things that I often feel is missing from our political discussions are clearly articulated goals. We didn't really have a goal with the pandemic. We sort of defaulted to hospital capacity. And I think we see this across all sectors. I, I'm picking on politics right now. And, you know, it's, it's something that is certainly being discussed, which is positive. So, you know, in the private sector context, we talk about, you know, it's being framed as purpose, but this idea, you know, it's more than just shareholder value. You have to look across all your stakeholder groups in the charitable sector. It's, you know, leading to extinction. You know, uh, we don't, we don't start a food bank and hope that the food bank 
has a great, you know, 50 year run, we, we, we start a food bank hoping we solve the problem right. of food insecurity. Right. And, right. and in politics, we have, we have mandate letters, party platforms, there were red books, there's detailed platforms, there's more high level platforms, but, but goal setting, um, it across sectors just seems to be something that people are leery of doing today. Yeah, that's a good question. So there's 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 the general question about sort of the West, and then there's also the, the narrow question of Canada. I, I agree. Um, in the early days of the pandemic, there were three things that, that shocked me and a lot of people, right, and probably you as well, right. There was there was the um, you know the the building of a hospital in in Wuhan in like three days, right, where they just yeah. sort of like started building one. There was um, there was what happened in Lombardy, which is just simply which seemed to be just absolute chaos and uh, the social breakdown of the, of the systems. And then there was the um, satellite photos of uh, Iran digging mass graves in Qom. Um, yeah. All of which just sort of went like, what the heck is going on here, right? Um, and, and like, I'm one of those people who kind of slept, walked through the pandemic until, you know, until, until that stuff started happening. I was like, oh my goodness, like this is actually going to get serious. I'm inclined to give everybody a bit of a pass for those early days, up to and including the, the, World, the World Health Organization. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, fog of war stuff that goes on. What, what strikes me, though, is as a little more disturbing, and, and I agree with you that we have trouble focusing here in Canada in particular. I mean, it seems that every time, you know, something goes wrong, everyone, somebody calls for a national strategy on something, right? But, but Canada is actually a country that's very bad at executing national strategies, um, partly just because of the nature of the country, partly because of our, our, our institutions. Um, but, but I agree with you, we, we had trouble sort of focusing on any kind of goal. And, and the one that struck me that we didn't do a very good job on was um, the, the whole testing and tracing aspect of the pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, because when, when the pandemic sort of started, there were, there were these really good pieces that came out about, you know, what, what South Korea had done and what Taiwan had done and so on. And I had this, I guess, highly naive view that what was going to happen was teams of, of, of Taiwanese and uh, South Koreans were going to like sort of fan out across the globe and visiting all these countries where the pandemic was arriving. And they would give you like South Korea in a box or Taiwan in a box, right? They would say, here's the app, right? Here's how you test trace and isolate. Here's you. Like, I, I really thought that this is just how they were going to do it, right? There was like this, this, this plan that they would just hand people, right? With like an app. Even setting that aside, what struck me is just how in a country like Canada, everybody is hell-bent on learning um, every lesson independently. And, and I can give you one example, right? Which is that here in, here in Quebec, now Quebec quite, quite notoriously had a couple of very bad first and second waves, right? Um, but Quebec did something extremely uh, good in its third wave. And by the time the vaccine came out, it set up an amazing book of vaccine portal. Right, you could go into Click Sante, um, book a vaccine, and it would automatically book your second vaccine for you, and it would, you know, tell you where to go and when, and you'd show up and did it. Meanwhile, you know, two hundred kilometers away in Ontario, uh, <laughs> a Twitter account called Vaccine Hunters is, you know, frantically, you know, pulling information about where vaccines are available, and people are, are like, I had friends in Toronto tearing up to Acton or driving to like Sarnia or whatever to get vaccinated, right? And what, I, what, what continues to make me crazy is, you know, why didn't Ontario just ask for like the source code of the ClickSante website and like change everything in English and, you know, build the website, right? Like if federalism is not about, you know, experimentation and learning from, you know, and sharing best practices quickly, you know, what's the point of it? Okay. So, uh, 
in a great piece in the hub, you talk about how like we're living the tombstone mentality right now. And you give the example of the March 2021 um, funding announcement um, uh, for the Sanofi vaccine manufacturing plant uh, in Toronto um, to just explain to, to listeners how not only is that an example of the tombstone mentality, but it's kind of like tombstone mentality to the exponent too. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. It's deja vu all over again. And it's also, by the way, if I can make a plug for the value of history, it's also uh, a, a powerful illustration of the importance of knowing your history because the history, history is not past. <laughs> history is what makes us today. History is right now. Um, so yeah, so the government announced that they were going to put money into Sanofi uh, in a facility in Toronto. Uh, and uh, some years down the road, this is going to allow Sanofi to expand the facility so that some years down the road, it becomes a major hub of vaccine manufacturing. Um, and in the event of some future pandemic, that means that Canada will have a domestic capacity for manufacturing vaccines. That is <laughs> obviously a great policy. I am thrilled that they're doing it. But yeah, need to know the history to realize how absolutely tragic that announcement was. And there wasn't nearly enough attention paid to that announcement. It was so unbelievably important. Um, the history is that the site, the very site that Sanofi is on was uh, once Connaught Laboratories. And Connaught Laboratories was created in the early 20th century by a University of Toronto professor who was responding to pandemics occurring in Canada, um, which were killing Canadians at a horrible rate, despite the fact that there were available uh, treatments and vaccines. Uh, They were available in the United States, but Canadians couldn't afford them or couldn't get them for various reasons. And this humanitarian fellow said, we need Canadian vaccine manufacturing capacity. They ended up creating Connaught Laboratories Gannott Laboratories did amazing work uh, over the years for decades, um, and and that's a Canadian uh, source of domestic vaccine manufacturing. Uh, but of course, by the time you get to the 1970s, the 1980s, pandemics and the threats of of you know some virus popping up and ravaging the land uh, starts to be starts to feel like one of those things is in the distant past. It no longer starts to feel like an immediate threat, right? Smallpox has gone away. Polio has come and gone. Uh, the influenza vac- uh, pandemic of 1918 was is ancient history. And guess what happens? Well, at that point, it seems pretty reasonable that you would count laboratories. Why would we continue to fund that, right? Uh, so it gets privatized. Um, and, and I suppose, from that perspective, and I'm, I'm not going to suggest otherwise. You know, I, don't, I, I wasn't I wasn't saying at the time, don't do this. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, it, it, I'm sure it seemed like a reasonable thing to do. Well. The consequence of that was that we ended up not having domestic vaccine production capacity uh, when the big one came. Um, And so the announcement that the government made in March of this year was basically saying, oh, oops, we got rid of that preparedness. And now let's we're going to pay to get it back. The one thing I will say about the United States 
is that they do have a preparedness culture. I mean, obviously they're human beings and they suffer from the weaknesses of, uh, of all of human psychology and, and they have, you know, uh, a really fractured politics layered on top of that. But, but they do have like, you know, a prep act and BARDA where they're constantly looking at new innovations, um, to deal with, you know, all kinds of, you know, horrific events from chemical warfare to nuclear meltdown to, you know, catastrophic tsunamis. Um, but getting to the, to this idea of like the who, right? Like it's like, okay, a Royal commission or a university, um, initiated, uh, you know, large review, like what, what are the right expertise, you know, to have around the table to look at these types of, of events and, and not just kind of narrowly zero in on the pandemic that just happened. When you have an enormous thorny problem like this, I mean, like this is really huge, right? This is really complex. Before you get into the weeds like that, the very first thing I would do is say this, what's the goal? Yeah. Such a clarifying, magnificent, simple little question. Um, for the for the purposes of our book, we interviewed Frank Gehry, the architect. Um, and of course, Frank Gehry is, you know, this magnificent architect, you know, he's a genius and, and, and he's the kind of person who, you know, you would expect you just give him a blank check and you say, Frank, you know, whatever you want, just build whatever you want. <laughs> for, that's not how Frank Gehry operates. When a client comes to Frank Gehry, he always asks, I love this, why are you doing this project? And he starts having a long conversation about the why, right? What, what are you trying to get out of this? What's the goal? What's the goal? Um, and so really, we need to start there. What do we want to get out of whatever the postmortem is, the postmortem analysis? And I would argue, and that's in, in that hub piece, I laid out a few points. I would argue, and this is what I'm urging, we don't just want to understand how what we got right and what we got wrong, uh, and how it could have been done better. That's just step one. I would argue that the goal has to be to do these things uh, and to recognize the fact that preparedness gets hamstrung as time passes. And therefore, we also have to ask, how do we prepare in such a way that it doesn't get undone in, in the future when our sense of alarm has faded? And number three, number two or three or whatever number I'm up to. <laughs> um, so I would also insist, please, please, please. It's not about, as I said, it's not about uh, a COVID-like, prepare, better preparing for a COVID-like uh, pandemic. It's not about better preparing for a pandemic. It's better preparing for low probability, high consequence events. And if we have that as the blocks, and you have like that, however many points that is, <laughs> that's a nice, simple, clear, and yet enormous mandate. And then once we have that, once you have that statement, this is the goal. Here's what we want to accomplish with this inquiry. Then work backwards um, and start to lay out, well, how do we get to that goal? It has to be. It absolutely has to be completely multidisciplinary, right? We're going to start with the virologist. We're going to start with the epidemiologist, but that's not enough. We have to get into the behavioral scientists, right? We have to talk about why do people prepare 
you know, why do the people find it so hard to prepare for things that they know could happen, but haven't happened? And, and then we have to start talking about, okay, solutions, right? And, and how do you maintain these things? And, and, and that's not just psychology that I've emphasized here. That's also politics. There is a cognitive theory that describes how our brains filter information. Things that we can see, hear, feel, or taste enough to pay attention to gets filtered through our short-term memory. And the brain decides what is important enough to save, ultimately encoding it into our long-term memory permanently, or at least we hope. Unlike behavioral science, consumed with the output from an organism, cognitive science takes it all into account the input, the output, and everything in between. Both disciplines are used in an attempt to solve how information, and in particular, something like an algorithm, might pose some pretty dangerous risks to society. Cass Sunstein and Carl Bergstrom talk us through it. What's the perniciousness caused by too much government-mandated information disclosure? Uh, there are several perniciousnesses. Uh, one is you can just confuse and overwhelm people. So if you give people a ton of paper or a ton of words, it might just baffle them and it might not have the desired impact. Another possibility is you might really scare people unnecessarily or make them feel depressed or hopeless if you give them some information, for example, about medicine that's really going to help you and is packed with stuff about side effects which demoralize you. And a third possibility is if you give people information, it might be that an activity that they're enjoying, like going to the movies and eating popcorn, is less fun. So to be very careful about whether an information mandate is going to impair or ruin an experience is a really good idea for policymakers. When I think back to about 10 years ago in the policymaking universe, there was so much promise around transparency. We felt like it was going to accomplish so much. Has it accomplished anything? Yeah, a lot. So there are things involving environmental risks where governments have publicized who are the biggest polluters. And transparency has been extremely effective in some countries in, in encouraging polluters to emit less. Uh, with respect to greenhouse gas emissions, uh, transparency is on balance a good thing. It can trigger public concern and it can trigger feelings of conscience. Uh, when people get food that has calorie labels in it, there's tra transparency about that. Uh, the record is that can be, the record we have so far, early days, is that this can be a big benefit for public health. If there's transparency that there's, for example, peanuts in food or shrimp in food, some people have allergies to peanuts, but having these, uh, th this kind of transparency can be a really good idea. So part of the goal of understanding what information is too much information is also to get clear on the fact that in uh, every society, really, uh, high levels of transparency with things can be a great safeguard, both for health and safety and against government malfeasance or mistakes. We had this interesting experience in Ontario, Canada, where about 15 years ago, 
a piece of legislation was introduced to create mandatory disclosure of public sector salaries over $100,000. Flash forward to today, one of the accomplishments, uh, some say the only accomplishment of that statute, is that it's really driven up salaries in the public sector. And I don't think that was the intention behind it. It's a great example. So I taught for a long time at a university where we weren't really allowed to say what our salaries were, uh, even with our best friends. Uh, There was a moral taboo on discussing your salary. And you could say that was a good idea as a way of discouraging, you know, kind of ugly bragging or ugly self-pity. But really what the university was thinking is the salaries are fine. And if people are talking with one another about their salaries, they're going to get really competitive. And it's going to be a kind of arms race among faculty members for more and more money. And that's really not good for anybody. We understand the call where transparency, as in the case you described, can make people think, hey, I'm earning less money than my colleague. And that could be a good thing, let's say, if they're being discriminated against or treated unfairly. Lots of folks point to the fact that China's reporting was so delayed around the outbreak of the novel infectious disease. And that has led to some catastrophic consequences. I'm wondering if you could just share some thoughts with us about timeliness and how you create good incentives for sharing of information. Okay, so there are two great incentivizers for disclosure of information that really should be disclosed. One is democracy and the other is free markets. So in a democratic society, Um, it's generally understood that sunlight is the best of disinfectants, as a judge once wrote. And it's also understood that if people keep things secret, there might be, when things are working well, hell to pay, unless there's good reason to keep the thing secret, like national security or privacy. So a well-functioning democracy with freedom of press and civil society can uh, work against, let's just say, unjustified secrecy. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. Uh, In free markets, if a company, let's say, is selling a product, uh, being secret about the fact that it uh, has some side effect or it has some hidden terms that you're going to get hit by only six months in, or let's say the product kind of breaks down in a hurry and the company either doesn't disclose that or lies about that. If the competition, the system of competition is working well, that's going to get out pretty quick and that company is not going to do very well. So the fact that in free markets, products that succeed tend to uh, be revealed as better than products that fail is a tribute to the uh, transparency forcing impact of of, of free markets. Um, In societies that don't have free markets and certainly in societies that don't have uh, democracy or something close to it, uh, let's call it um, self-interested or harmful secrecy is, is far more likely. You are also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. And in when we were still very much 
gathering data to better understand the threat of COVID-19. You published an opinion piece on the dangers of probability and neglect, which is when we ignore the likelihood of occurrence. We now have a lot more information about this virus. This is a show about risk and as a policymaker, what can be done? What might the guardrails be to keep the risk discussion grounded in math and science as much as possible and less so in emotion and experience? Well, I worked on risk really for uh, four years in the U.S. government. I was lucky enough or cursed enough, I think lucky, uh, to be overseeing risk regulation, among other things, in the United States, subject, of course, to the president's uh, direction. And the greatest safeguard I saw against, let's say, underreaction and overreaction to risk uh, consisted of an insistence on um, putting the experts not only kind of in the building, but in the room. So when decisions are made about, let's say, a potential pandemic or about climate change or about air pollution or about highway safety, to have people who you don't even know what their politics is, all you know is that they're specialists in the area, is essential. The two offices in the White House apparatus that I you know, most loved in my heart of hearts were the uh, Office of Science and Technology Policy and the Council of Economic Advisors. And it's because the Office of Science and Technology people, they were data people and you couldn't predict what they'd say. So on a Tuesday, they might say, you know what? The governments, our governments, all worried about this risk. It's really small. Don't regulate it. And then on Friday, they'd say, the government's all worried about this risk. They're right. In fact, they're underestimating the magnitude of the risk. So their technical uh, focus completely outran their policy commitments. And the Council of Economic Advisors, which is a relatively apolitical set of economists in most administrations, they might say, you know, this is going to impose extremely severe costs on the world in terms of illness. And then on something else, they might say, no, it's not, it's not much of a problem. Don't worry about it. Because if you monetize the value of the, the harm, it's, it's pretty small. And to put those people in the room in Canada and Germany and Denmark or China is indispensable. So straight off the top, is bullshit winning? Bullshit has a big advantage. And the big advantage is known as Brandolini's uh, law or Brandolini's bullshit asymmetry principle. And the idea is that um, bullshit takes an order of magnitude more work to clean up than it does to produce. And so as a result, people can create enormous amounts of this stuff. And it takes tons of effort for us to come around and clean up all the misinformation out there. So that's the edge that it, that it has. And uh, we are right now in a in sort of a position in society where we're struggling to keep up and adapt to some of the new changes such as social media that have really uh it, it sort of improved the ability of, of of bullshit to spread across across our information environments 
Do you think bullshit is a bigger problem today because of some of these things, whether it's algorithms or just the the scale that technology provides today? I think absolutely. Uh, you know, people have always complained that, uh, you know, for, for thousands of years, people have complained that, you know, uh, bullshit has gotten worse than it than it used to be, but just that the, that the sort of decay of truth and the decay of the media environment and so on. So it's not a particularly new claim that, that we're making, but I do honestly believe that it's true that right now we're dealing with this stuff. It's, it's having a bigger impact on our lives, posing a bigger threat to uh, you know everything from democratic governance to our ability to take care of planetary health to things like our ability to manage a pandemic than we have seen in the fairly recent past. Some of that is certainly uh, to do with social media. And it's the fact that social media platforms are designed to uh, keep you online and to uh, maximize your engagement with a platform, not to maximize the informativeness or accuracy of the information that flows across there. And so the whole user experience involves putting information out there and then it's shared uh, virally in ways that, uh, that, that can take a, a you know a single poorly sourced uh, claim and then that can sort of explode across the internet and you know a day later you could have say the you know president of the United States retweeting something that somebody made up a day a day previously and then the other side of that is is as you mentioned these algorithms are you know, likewise designed to maximize our engagement rather than being designed to maximize accuracy and so we've got this whole level of you know sort of machine learning that's being layered on top of all this to figure out what is it that this person is most likely to click, most likely to reshare, most likely to watch. And what you know tends to be the case is that sort of more extreme content, more shocking content, more um, you know, enraging content, whatever it is, these are the things that get shared. Yeah, it does feel different uh, than, than it has in the past. Does bullshit make us vulnerable in other areas of life too. So, so that's sort of the, the political and our civic side. But are there other aspects to bullshit that, that make us vulnerable? You know, bullshit has made us vulnerable to, uh, you know, advertising pitches and, and the likes for a long time. So we're certainly vulnerable in terms of, say, our consumer behavior. You know, various forms of bullshit, I think, have made us extremely vulnerable during this, um, during this current pandemic crisis. Uh, you know, there's been this tendency throughout the duration of the crisis for the uh, White House to treat this as a public relations problem rather than a public health problem. And so there's a focus on the numbers and making the numbers look good instead of a focus on solving the problem. Uh, you know, not only does it misinform us about what's going on. So, you know, a lot of us might have, you know, say, listened on February 26th to the assurances uh, that, uh, you know, this was, you know, there were just a few cases in the U.S. and that was going down and this was going to go away. And so we might have made plans for April that, that we weren't able to keep. Uh, also, this sort of focus on on manipulating the numbers really has really undermined the public health response in the United States. And, and the most dramatic example there, I think, is with testing. Testing is an extremely important component of a public health response because you can use it to uh, screen for people who are infected but don't know it. And you can uh, you know help those people then isolate from the population and reduce that spread. And so Goodert's Law says, you're rephrased by Marilyn Strathern, Goodert's Law says that when a measure becomes a target, it, it loses its um, efficacy as a measure. So once, uh, once you start trying to make um, you know, the number of cases 
once the number of cases is sort of seen as a as a as a report card, then you're going to have changes in the way that testing takes place that that reduces the utility of that number of cases for measuring how well we're doing in terms of the response. And then there's the second thing that comes with this, and this is sort of the, um, there's something called Campbell's Law, which is another rephrasing of this, is that it also tends to create incentives for, you know, sort of perverse incentives for behaviors that actually make things worse. So not only does, uh, not only do you get the wrong information, but, uh, you know, the fact that you're using number of cases as a measure, it's incentivizing uh, a slowing down of testing and undermining of, of public health uh, efforts around the country. You suggest that education is probably our best weapon against bullshit. And, and this book, in fact, is based on a course you teach at uh, the University of Washington. I, I, I find that interesting. You know, I'm a lawyer by training and, you know, we used to look to the law, right, to, to, to you know, manage uh, our bullshit problem. Why do you think education is the better solution today? Well, I think that, um, you know, when I try to think about how are we going to deal with bullshit problem in general, and you can think about social media in particular or more broadly, and you, I sort of see um, various pillars on which, on which you, could, you could ground something like this. Um, and, the, you know, so you could, you could imagine uh, tech solutions. So you can imagine using artificial intelligence to detect fake news and, and block it or something. I'm very pessimistic about this because I think that those problems turn out to be very, very hard. Um, I don't really trust the, the incentives of the of the platforms to do this well. The um, uh, and and there's potential to use sort of adversarial techniques. You know, if you can make an artificial intelligence that uh, that can detect fake news, you can make an artificial intelligence that can make artif- fake news that the detector doesn't detect. And so I, I I don't think that's where things are going to go. Then there's then there's regulation and and legal solutions, and I think there we really crash up against at least for me, a uh, strong sense of you know, First Amendment protections and, and freedom of speech. And so I definitely don't want uh, you know, criminalization or you know, even uh, you know, strong civil penalties associated with, with speech uh, in general, um, because who gets to choose what, what's, what's fake news and what's not? I mean, we've, got a, um, you know, we've, we've heard a lot lately of, of people calling anything they don't like fake news. And, uh, and so, that, so that's a big concern for me. You know, I think there are places where regulation can help, but ultimately it, it has to be in the consumer that, uh, you know, of this information that the, that the kind of filter reside. I think it's possible to empower individuals to be able to see through misinformation. And that's really a major theme of the book is that, look, you don't need a degree in statistics or in data science or, or anything like that to be able to spot quantitative misinformation, to be able to interrogate quantitative data. All you need to do is just to be able to think logically in the same way that you've uh, learned to already. You know, right now, I think we don't do an adequate job in our STEM classes in teaching people to question the starting assumptions and why are they doing the analyses that they're doing. And so our students tend to be quite good at being able to invert matrices and write code and 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 uh, you know, do bioinformatic analyses and things like that. But it's uh, but because of the way we teach, uh, we don't often show them uh, you know good examples where the entire premises of a of a study or a question are are fallacious and you need to question those and step back. And so I think as we move toward doing more and more of that, we can we can do a better job of teaching people to, to think in this way. 
A recent Deloitte's executive summary identified that the risk of advanced data analytics and cognitive technologies are leading to an explosion in the use of algorithms across a range of purposes, industries, and business functions. These have substantial influence, including what information individuals are exposed to, what jobs they're offered, what medical treatment their doctors recommend, and even their treatment in the judicial system. Though the initial programming intent was one of objectivity and infallibility, we've already shown that these black boxes are vulnerable to risks, such as accidental or intentional biases, errors, and frauds. This raises the question, how can we trust algorithmic systems? Journalists Jeff Jarvis and Anaba Duncan are tired, but hopeful. So just to get right into it, is journalism itself at risk or just its traditional business model? Every institution in society is now at risk right now in the sense that it is being challenged with change. And it depends on how they adapt or don't adapt. We're seeing that in the United States with policing with banks, uh, with the government, Lord knows, democracy itself. So yes, journalism, as we knew it, is at risk. But to me, the greater risk is trying to preserve journalism as we knew it in a time of changed circumstances. And so I want journalism to change. It must change or it will be at more risk. You sometimes uh, refer to journalism with a capital J. Can, Can you explain what that is? I'm not one who talks about the journalist. I think anyone can perform an act of journalism. Uh, You know, the person who takes a photo from a uh, demonstration and shares that. Uh, The 17-year-old young woman who bravely videoed the death of George Floyd. uh, Those are acts of journalism. Uh, There's also then the institution of journalism, though. And it acts in one way. And I think society and, and a new journalism have to act in another way. I had the privilege of starting a new degree at my school, the New Mark J School, in what we call social journalism, or others call it engagement journalism, which means you start with the communities. You don't start with the idea of content. And I follow the words of the late Columbia professor, James Carey, who said that uh, journalism doesn't so much inform the public conversation as it should be informed by the public conversation. Journalism needs to learn first to listen. There was a great article uh, in a Canadian magazine, uh, The Walrus, and full disclosure, I chair the board of directors of of The Walrus. Um, But this particular article was about Russell Smith, and he used to write for the Globe and Mail here, and uh, he was uh, uh, invited to depart. He was talking about the algorithms that he saw um, that that was so core to the Globe and Mail's uh, strategy. And he wrote this. He said, algorithms that tell us which topics are trending don't merely reflect trends. They can also help create them. Is that just bad listening? Yes. Well said. By the way, I love the walrus. Uh, I'm a canadophile. And every time I'm in Toronto, I uh, buy a copy. Um uh, oh, yes, I hate uh, trending topics because um, they're first and foremost, they're meaningless. If you look at a trending topic on Twitter or Facebook, only a tiny, tiny percentage of the whole uh, actually sees that. The problem here is that it's the reflex of mass media thinking. 
uh, that uh, we have to reach everyone all at once in uh, with our one product. And and I think what the internet kills is the mass media business model with it, mass media itself, and with it, this idea of the mass. But we don't get rid of it in our conversation. So you see headlines all the time that says, Twitter says, or Twitter is going nuts over. There is no one monolithic Twitter. Twitter is nothing but a collection of millions of individual voices. And the hard part we have to learn now is how do we find and listen to and amplify those voices that are worth amplifying. What that shows when we have trending algorithms and trending reports and most links on newspapers is that we can't get away from that mass reflex of thinking that only the majority matters. It's uh, it's Carleton University's 75th anniversary, and the theme that they've chosen for their online event is journalism in the time of crisis. Why is journalism in such a crisis in your view? Journalism has been in a crisis for a long time, but we're just seeing why in this moment. A lot of people are more aware of, I guess, the toxicity of, of white supremacy and what it what it means and what it can do. And... Right now, the the crisis really has to do with the idea of objectivity, because the question is, whose objectivity are we talking about? And for many of us in journalism, getting into journalism, um, at least for people of color, I'll speak from from my point of view, because that's all I can speak from, is that you very quickly get the idea of who the audience is and who the reader is. And usually that person is white. Unless there is something else really specific that we're talking about. I don't know, uh, like Ramadan or Caravana. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. I do. Um, And so these are the conversations that that a lot of us are having with each other. Just, uh, for example, the idea that um, some people are have been told to think of when you're trying to do a national story. Um, Think of Susie in Saskatchewan. And who is Susie in Saskatchewan? Susie in Saskatchewan is a white woman and likely is maybe middle to upper class, right? She's got an education. She's straight. There are are a lot of assumptions of of who the, the reader is. And I think right now the crisis is, well, we have to rethink who our stories are for. And not only that, who's telling the stories? We've got to look at our newsrooms and try and change what it feels like in the atmosphere. I think a lot of people will say, look, we we do have a number of people of color in our newsrooms. They're here and they have been here for, ma- for many years. But now the conversation is changing to, um, okay, when you suggest a story from a certain perspective, I'm just going to hold off from thinking that that's not a story, for example. I'm going to hold off on thinking that your perspective is biased. I'm going to open my mind to the idea that there's a whole group of people who just don't think like me. And it is an active, active way of approaching journalism. It's not to say that people haven't been doing that now or approaching journalism actively, but it's from a different lens. On this topic of objectivity, uh, Pasinth Matar has a piece in The Walrus on uh, titled Canadian Canadian media's racism problem. And the question I asked myself was, you know, how embedded is this concept of objectivity? How, how integrated into journalism is it? 
if if there's success in pulling on that thread of trying to get at what you were saying, you know, getting beyond, you know, Susie in Saskatchewan, right? Mm-hmm. How 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 will we know that's happening? What 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 will look different? Your question of you know how how attached is the idea of objectivity to journalism? Um, I mean, it's baked in. It's baked. I mean, th- that is. Uh, I mean, the central tenet of of uh, journalism is to tell the truth objectively. And I think a lot of journalists will say, even before we started having these conversations, that objectivity is like, come on, you're a human being. You can't be completely objective, right? But um, some of these same journalists, when you talk to them about objectivity or maybe looking at objectivity through a more inclusive lens, they're challenged to see that thinking about, talking about, race isn't a biased perspective. This is not everyone. I'll say that again. Right. So what will happen, um, I think, is some type of unraveling. Um, it might make things even more, it might be more divisive. I do think that we could be at a wonderful turning point for journalism if we are really to do this. I mean, can you imagine I, I mean, it's uncharted territory, right? It's completely uncharted t- t- territory. Um, if you want to talk about Pacent's article, um, when she was in the streets talking to two young black men in in um, in the U.S., um, it would mean that she would just say to somebody, "Oh, I talked to these two men, and their names are X and Y," and not, "Well, um, you know, are you sure that those are their names? Have you verified?" Those of us who uh, have to come up against these kinds of comments know is that a lot of us always say to each other, I mean, would you say that if we were talking about something else and it had nothing to do with race? Like if it was just a streeter and somebody said that, uh, you know, somebody told you about an experience, would you say to them, like, did you verify that with the police? Okay, let's talk about the journalism workplace. Tell us about your research. What I'm interested in is the experience of leaders of color in Canadian media. To add the goal of trying to um, stem systemic racism or prevent it or any of those things as a person of color onto your job as leader, I suspect is very burdensome. And the reason why the the reason why I suspect it is because even as just a person working in the the, the newsroom or, or a person who's not a leader in journalism, it's burdensome. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Like right. but I, I even found that there was a time when if I had a black guest, I would get kind of fumbly and weird. This is gonna be pretty nuanced, but I'm gonna try to ex- explain my struggle. I would be met with uh, a black guest. And because I wanted to, to be perfectly honest, because I would want to kind of give them space, serve them as a fellow black person, I would wonder if I was doing the job right, being too hard. I wanted to make sure that I serve them well in the questions. Like if the black community was listening, I would try and bring questions that would be coming from my perspective. Like I would actively try to think, don't think of Susie in Milton or whatever. Try to think of somebody 
who was maybe either in this person's family or like another person, like what would a black person ask? And hello, I'm a black person. So I go inside myself and I go, so what would I want to know? You know what I mean? And like what that tells you or what that tells me is that for a long time, I've not been coming from the perspective as a black person. I've been putting on this other thing. Wow, that's profound. It's weird is what it is. And so it makes me understand why some people, they just leave. Right. They just leave the industry because it's too much. Because sometimes when they try to go from their perspective, they're being screened for activism. Over the span of this COVID pandemic, the general population was exposed to piles of medical studies, press releases, scientific information, healthcare advice, and a bit of information overload. But we also got to know the intricacies of the anatomy of risk. In that front seat, a lot of us were sickened both physically and morally. One point of serious discussion was the concept of immune deficiency. The idea that not everyone could just get the vaccine and get over it. That there were people who were immunocompromised and had a weakened immune system that prevented them from fighting off invading pathogens. Retired four-star U.S. Army General Stanley McChrystal wants us to think of risk management like an immune system to protect us from future pandemic, health, climate, and society. Uh, You use this metaphor of our risk immune system. Uh, Why is that metaphor helpful? How did you settle on it? Well, it's interesting backstory. Uh, Some years ago, I started teaching at Yale University and I never taught before, but I'm up there preparing class and a young lady walks in and she's an immunologist at Yale, brilliant lady. And she came in and she said, I want to talk about the human immune system. And I just looked at her because I knew nothing. And she said, I think it's the same as counterinsurgency, which I had been involved with in Afghanistan. And I said, how could they be the same? And she took me through an initial class on the fact that the human immune system is this miracle that we all have. And it detects the risks coming at us. It assesses each risk to determine if it's dangerous to us. It responds to those risks and it learns from it. And it does that about 10,000 times a day to microorganisms that assault our bodies that would otherwise make us sick or kill us. And yet, Jody, you and I don't get up in the morning worried about our risk immune system. We don't try to jumpstart it and say, I hope it works today. We just take it for granted unless it doesn't. And then if you think about it, the risk immune system doesn't really spend you know, our human immune system doesn't spend time worrying about the risks out there because it can't do anything outside the bounds of the human body. So instead, it prepares itself, makes itself as healthy as possible to, to come to deal with whatever does show up. We started thinking about that in terms of overall risk because they did a poll some years ago about chief executive officers of major corporations. And they asked them, what are the biggest threats to your company? And they each listed about 10. And they were almost all external threats, things that can happen in the market or the, the economy or the outside world. And yet when they looked at big organizations like corporations that failed, most of the time they failed because of some internal weakness. And it was interesting because we tend to want to look around the corner under rocks in the dark and try to predict what threats are going to come at us exactly when and what they'll look and feel like. And in reality, 
if we make our own organization stronger, if we build up the risk immune system that every organization has naturally, and it's at some level of health, we can be a lot more resilient. That's so fascinating. I I, I really enjoyed the book and I really, uh, I found the metaphor very helpful as an entry point to really think about risk and to, as you bring out in the book, you know, you have these dials and, and you can, you can work on them. Is there any early warning signs that maybe your risk immune system isn't as healthy as it should be? I think there are plenty of warning signs if you check it. And what we have is 10 factors, which we call risk control factors, which make up the system. And they are things such as the health of communication in an, inside an organization. The narrative, is everybody aligned on a common story of what we are and why we are that? Our ability to use technology, how adaptable are we? Our ability to act, can we overcome inertia? Our ability to bring in diversity so that we get differing perspectives. Our ability to overcome biases. Our ability to adapt when needed. And of course, leadership, which sort of pulls them all together. And you say, well, I won't know until the crisis whether my system is working right. But that that need not be. In fact, we can check inside our organization how good our communications are. We have a lot of ways you can check communications. We can do hard looks at diversity. And when I talk about diversity, I'm not talking about just gender or race or age. I'm talking about perspectives and experience, which really make up critical things. We can see how dependent we are on technology and sometimes dependent in ways we don't even understand. So there are all kinds of things which we can do to both measure our risk immune systems, but also to strengthen them before the major crises hit. And of course, we also have to go to school on every time we have been tested by outside threats, which is pretty often, and look at what we didn't get right and look at what we have to make stronger for next time. So, of course, I couldn't help but think of the Argo mission, as you mentioned, where uh, the Canadians were involved in rescuing and assisting the the retrieval of uh, some of the Americans who had been employed at the embassy and were trapped inside Iran. I couldn't help but think about it. But it was kind of a ridiculous plan, right? In some ways, you know, uh, we're going to pretend it's part of a movie set. (laughs) We're going to give you Canadian passports. Um, Yet that mission uh, was successful. Um, Just so curious to, to hear your insights, how a plan like that could be successful, whereas one that was involving, you know, uh, skilled uh, military people, uh, you know, in fact, and unfortunately failed. Yeah. I mean, that's a fascinating point, Judy, because we think of the Argo story, we'll just call it for that. It was kind of a preposterous plan. And yet I learned something when I was a young lieutenant. If it's stupid and it works, it ain't stupid. (laughs) And the idea that it was not something that the Iranians were likely to, to see happening because it was sort of preposterous. But let's think about risk really sort of analytically here. First, the risk of that plan was significant and the risk of... It failing and those people being then put in detention was high, but it wasn't likely that they would be killed. 
So there wasn't the likelihood that it would be a, an execution or something. They'd just probably be put in detention. But the people really accepting the greatest risk was your nation, Canada. And then you say, well, why would Canada do that? Canada is in Iran to a certain degree. They've got a, you know, a challenged relationship with the Iranian revolutionary government, but not like the United States. And if the plan had been uh, exposed, it's no doubt likely that Canadian citizens might have been taken hostage as well. And, of course, undercut all of the hopes of maintaining any kind of relationship through the Iranian revolutionary government. So you say, well, why would Canada do it? And you say, well, because we're neighbors on the Northern Hemisphere and, and we're North America, we're both good countries, et cetera. Well, yeah. But if you think about it also, Canada made, I believe, made an assessment that their relationship to the United States was important enough long-term going forward that it could it would take this kind of a risk because that kind of thing which helps maintain relationships over the time are very, very important. But it's it's interesting to think of it that way because it wasn't just the Americans that were at risk during that moment. And in your retelling of Operation Eagle Claw, you know, what stands out, you talked about the optimism of the people involved in making the decision and building the plans. It's really hard uh, to say difficult things and nobody wants to be perceived to be a pessimist. Um, yeah, your reputation is you are the kind of person who delivers the news that needs to be delivered, uh, but may not be happily received. How do you get through those barriers? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question because any organization in which, and I'm going to call it groupthink here because that, you know, we refer to it in the book that really was first coined after the failure of the Bay of Pigs mission in 1961, you get a dynamic in any group and that dynamic can often quash people from speaking their minds. There are a number of factors in it, but one is this idea that you want to be part of the group. So you don't want to be the one person that says the emperor's got no clothes or that the plan is stupid. And uh, there's this idea that you've got all the right minds in the room. And in fact, you may have huge gaps in perspectives. So you may actually get a bunch of people with essentially the same perspective on something. And yet you think because it's a group, you know, you're covering the waterfront. So I think organizations have got to first create processes, which as you are approaching an important decision, you get the right voices in the room, the right perspectives. Lehman Brothers famously had a chief risk officer, but then she wasn't brought into the room for most of the key investment decisions. And so they could check the block and say, yep, we've got a chief risk officer. We've got that covered. But in reality, it was an illusion. Enron did the same thing. And so you've got to put in place processes that force that, but do it genuinely. The second, you've got to create a culture, a culture in which it's not only okay to speak up, but it is not okay not to speak up. We have a uh, an exercise we mentioned in the book that we used in the military, and I've seen it in business as well, called a pre-mortem. And what it means is you, you do all the planning for something you're going to do. And then before execution, you get key players in the room to include junior players. And you say, okay, I want everybody to assume that we have failed. 
Now, tell us why we failed and start with the most junior people in the room. And this is the important part because you don't want to pollute um, their thinking with what more senior people will say. And you say, where did we fail? And every once in a while, you'll have just this incredible epiphany. During the war in Iraq, a friend of mine was commanding the Corps, multinational Corps, which was about 50,000 people. They put together a big operation to move forces out to the Syrian border. And as they're doing this pre-mortem before the operation, the commanding general said, okay, I want everybody in it. A young captain in the back of the room raised his hand and said, I assume you know that this plan requires my truck drivers, he, he ran truck drivers, requires my truck drivers to drive something like 18 or 20 hours a day for seven or eight days straight. And he goes, and that's a safety issue. And of course, you know, but he said, I assume, you know, of course, nobody in the room had recognized that, but you suddenly could have heard a pin drop because they knew that this was an absolute vulnerability of the plan. So they had to stop and change it. But if you hadn't had created the environment and the culture where that young officer felt the need to speak up, then the organization could blissfully have gone on to disaster. How often have we all been part of something where it goes badly and then afterwards somebody sidles up to you and goes, ah, I saw that coming. <laughs> and you go, wait a minute, well then why didn't you speak up? And the response is, well, nobody asked me. And you've got to create that where there's an automatic ask. Well, folks, this is our final episode looking back on the At Risk podcast. I am quite literally speaking to you with COVID-19, perhaps the most fitting way to end this podcast. But despite my viral state, I am filled with gratitude. I'm grateful to the guests who joined me. I'm grateful to the people who supported the editing and production of this podcast and to Canada 2020 for giving it a platform. And I'm super grateful to you for listening, because if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, it's not much of a podcast. Thank you to everyone who joined us on these episodes. I'm so grateful to all of them for sharing their expertise and some laughs during what were some pretty dark times. And I hope those laughs and all of that information helped you too, because it helped me enormously. We've talked about the business of risk, ideas about the risks to our health and our healthcare system, the impactful benefits of risk in art, and now the experts who have made clear that risk, well, it's complicated. Here's to some great discoveries, challenges, observations, and resolutions. I'm not sure that over the past two years, we've really learned how to handle risk, but I hope we're all a little bit better equipped to face risk head on and with hope. Thanks to my production team on these recordings, to Aisha Jera and Camille Hemming and Carolyn Smith, who was with me from the beginning, for compiling these. And of course, enormous thanks to you, our faithful listeners. Bye for now. And you know what? Be careful out there. Cass Sunstein, thank you so much for your dedication to good policy making and for joining me today. Thank you, a great pleasure. Stanley McChrystal, thank you so much for this gift that is your book. Nava, I was just gonna say thank you so much for joining me. This was so great. Thank you so much, Andrew. <laughs> 
Jeff Jarvis, thank you so much for joining me to discuss risks to and arising from journalism. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jody. Sometimes you have to thoroughly understand what something isn't to understand what it is. So thank you very much for your book, Carl.